0: Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. On March 10th, 2020, I started our late night coverage of the Michigan primary by telling podcast listeners that we were recording from our homes to test our remote capabilities in case the coronavirus forced us out of the office for a time. It was just meant to be a test and we have not recorded a podcast in our studio since. It's been a long year and a half with alternating periods of optimism and pessimism. As of today, about 700,000 Americans have died from COVID. The CDC estimates that 120 million Americans have been infected and more than 6 million have been hospitalized. Everyone's life, of course, has been affected in some way. There is now cautious optimism among public health experts that after the current Delta wave and with increases in vaccination rates, we will sometime soon reach a point when COVID is more of a background, if lingering concern, as opposed to our principal crisis. As we take stock of what happened, former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb argues in a new book that our experience with this pandemic didn't have to be so bad, and that we should be preparing for the next one now. His book is called Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. He was FDA commissioner from 2017 to 2019. He's also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and is on the board of Pfizer, which, of course, has a financial stake in the success of the COVID vaccine. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Also here with me to speak with Scott, our editor-in-chief, Nate Silver, and senior science writer, Maggie Kurth. Good to have you both here to chat with Scott today. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me on.
0: So before we talk about the ways that things could have been different, let's talk about how they actually were. What happened? How well did the United States respond to the COVID pandemic in your estimation, Scott?
2: Not well. You know, this was an asymmetric risk to the United States. There were a lot of countries that fared better than us. It was an asymmetric risk to a lot of the Western world we proved uniquely challenged in implementing respiratory precautions and the, the kinds of collective action that would have mitigated some of the spread. The pandemic was unavoidable. Once this escaped China, it was inevitable this was gonna be a global pandemic. Uh, but there were a lot of nations that feared a lot better than we did. And there were a lot of nations that early on put in place better measures to try to contain the initial spread. We were set back by the fact that early on, we didn't have the tools in place and didn't have the policies in place to mitigate that first wave of the epidemic. And I think a lot of our subsequent challenges really stemmed from that fact that early on, we were overwhelmed by infection in the first wave. And we also lost the opportunity to try to get the kind of collective political support behind a common set of measures that we could all agree on because of the way we implemented some of those initial steps, the initial mitigation. And as I say in a book, a lot of it sprung from our inability to deploy an effective diagnostic test But that inability to deploy a diagnostic test, I think, is a metaphor for a lot of our other shortcomings. So it's not just sort of a one-off problem. I think it really surfaced a lot of the more structural shortcomings of our overall response.
1: Talking about tests, I want to ask you a little bit about that, because I have been really struggling to understand why we are still... Messed up on tests compared to a lot of other places. You know, I'm hearing from people in the UK and Germany that they have these rapid tests that are like a dollar and they can get them super easily. And meanwhile, we, me, myself, am driving to three different Walgreens in trying to find one $30 test, rapid test when I need it. Why is the US still behind on testing? Why haven't we been able to catch up?
2: Well, first of all, I'd say we have a lot of testing right now. We just don't necessarily have the tests that consumers prefer. So if you look at some of the tests that are available point of care that require the result to be sent off overnight, or they're more complicated to administer, like the Keidel test, not all of them are as easy to administer as the Lucera test or the Binax Now test. And those are the ones that are in short quantity because people are buying them because they're they're attractive. You know, Governments in other countries stepped in to subsidize both the procurement, the development and procurement of these tests, as well as the acquisition of them by consumers. We didn't do that. We're starting to do that now. I think we certainly should have been doing that from the very outset, at least for a subset of the population, essential workers, people on Medicaid, others who are in vulnerable groups where frequent testing could be a much more effective tool. And then early on, and I was writing op-eds on this back in January. Early on, we really didn't prioritize the development of these point-of-care diagnostic tests. We had sort of this standard playbook of how we approached pandemics that was this highly sequential process that had CDC developing and deploying a test just to the public health labs, and then you would get the commercial manufacturers engaged. Then you would develop point-of-care tests. I mean, from the outset, we should have been trying to develop these point-of-care tests. So we were slow to even have these things in the marketplace. And the, you know, the bottom line is, You look at a test in the US versus overseas, I don't know for sure how much quality control and regulatory costs and legal costs are baked into the test, but there are those costs baked into the test here relative to a test, for example, in Europe. And so if we want these tests to be more affordable, we're gonna to have to subsidize them. From a public health standpoint, we absolutely should be doing that. I think this is the, one of the easiest things we could be doing to try to control this pandemic is subsidizing the, the manufacture and distribution of tests, particularly to people who are priced out of the market with these kinds of tools. I know counterfactuals are hard,
3: But let's say that we get off on a better footing in this kind of January through March period, where the book is very precise about diagnosing the problems. Can you kind of like paint what like a reasonable, optimistic case looks like, where maybe we still have a population that has resistance to certain public health guidance and still is very heterodox and still is very complicated, but that we have better tools in that initial period? What do you think the pandemic winds up looking like in the U.S.?
2: So let's just assume that back in January, someone at HHS and leadership picked up the phone, called one of the major diagnostic manufacturers or multiple diagnostic manufacturers and said, we're very worried about this virus as spreading in Wuhan. We think this potentially could become a global pandemic or become an epidemic in the United States. We need you to get into the market, get into the game, and start mass-producing diagnostic tests at scale. That's a four- to six-week process. Once you make that phone call, if the companies make a commitment to do that, and they would have, the big companies would have gotten into this game if they were asked to do that. That phone call was never made, really, until the end of February. Then you would have had a massive amount of testing available at some point in February. So we would have had testing available to start turning over cases to start, first of all, controlling the initial spread, although by then that country was heavily seated now when you look back at the modeling. But even more important than knowing where the virus was, we would have been able to figure out where it wasn't. We would have known that while New York was on the brink of collapse and absolutely had to shut down the city, the healthcare system had been breached, and New Orleans similarly, and, and Boston, and Philadelphia, and Chicago, all cities that were overwhelmed by infection, and without the population-wide mitigation at that point, we weren't gonna be able to control the epidemic. The healthcare systems would have been breached. We would have known, though, that the virus hadn't gotten to Bozeman, Montana yet, and that parts of the South, certainly parts of Texas and Florida and Arizona, really didn't have appreciable levels of virus at that point. So you could still use testing and tracing and quarantine as a way to control the spread in those parts of the country. But without a diagnostic test, not only didn't we know where the virus was, we didn't know where it wasn't. And so when we had to reach for the population-wide mitigation. When officials in Washington looked at what was happening in New York, they assumed every other city would fall. I remember one person telling me, a very senior official in the White House said, if another city falls like New York, we're not going to have the ability to backstop them. The quote was, we're not going to be able to give another city the New York touch. So they were very worried about multiple cities becoming engulfed with virus. And so we ended up doing the 15 days to slow the spread a historic national effectively shutdown of non-essential activity, followed by 30 more days. But not every part of the country had to shut down. And so if we had known where the virus was and wasn't, we could have targeted those measures. And then when the virus eventually got to the south later in the summer, then we could have deployed the mitigation when the virus had arrived. As it were, when the virus finally arrived in the south, a lot of the local political leaders and the population said, look, we shut down in the spring when we didn't have to. You told us to shut down, we did, and we're not doing it again. So you played that political card too early and you lost the trust of the public. And it was a simple diagnostic test that we didn't have that could have enabled much better targeting. Final point on this... When you look back at the 2005 pandemic plan that was put in place, and I was at HHS at the time in the Bush administration. I was you know, a young senior advisor to the FDA commissioner and then was working at the FDA as the deputy commissioner at the time. So I was peripherally involved in how this was being developed. But I talk about this in the book. The initial plans on pandemic preparedness in 2005 contemplated using population-wide mitigation really for the first time. It was the first time we contemplated at scale the idea of closing schools and closing businesses to control a pandemic, but it never contemplated doing that on a national scope. It always envisioned that you would target those measures to places where the virus was, but we had no ability to do that because of the lack of that diagnostic capability.
1: The lack of the diagnostic capability is one part of that, but were we set up to have the tracing part of test and trace? Were were we prepared enough for how to do that? Because it seems like that was something else that we really failed on our ability to actually follow through with.
2: Yeah, we didn't have the public health infrastructure in place to do effective tracing. I mean, the public health system, the local public health system was overwhelmed. But just merely getting more diagnostic tests into use would have gone a long way because we could have turned over more cases. You could have done some preliminary testing, you know, people, very close contacts. You didn't need to trace all the way down to have an impact on the epidemic. And you could have started to get people who were contagious isolated if you can get them diagnosed. If you look back at the pandemic tabletop exercises and the playbooks, Crimson Contagion, the, uh, the exercise that was done really close to when COVID ultimately struck, they always involved a hypothetical pandemic involving a flu. And with flu, A diagnostic test isn't as important, a deployable diagnostic test, it wasn't part of the exercise because, first of all, flu has a very short incubation period, so you're exposed to flu and you catch flu in a very short period of time. So by the time you get someone diagnosed and you trace them, there's sort of multiple chains of transmission that have been lit, so contact tracing can't be as effective as a tool. And second of all, with flu, you're typically contagious when you have symptoms. You know, you don't have people who are asymptomatic or might never become symptomatic spreading the flu virus, typically. I mean, obviously there's exceptions. So the diagnostic test isn't a key feature of epidemic control in that setting. And the nation's installed base of flu testing, you know, you go into your doctor's office, they have a machine to test for flu. That would be sufficient because in a pandemic strain of flu would either be influenza A or influenza B. And the tests that's in your doctor's office can differentiate influenza A or influenza B. If a pandemic flu is circulating, You know, if someone comes in, if the pandemic flu is influenza B and someone comes in with influenza B, you assume they have the pandemic strain because that's the strain that's circulating. So that whole installed base would be adequate for turning over those cases. We never envisioned a pandemic involving coronavirus where you'd have to actually do a molecular test to find that species of coronavirus and differentiate it from seasonal coronavirus so we didn't have an installed infrastructure to do this we didn't even have a plan to do it and we didn't we didn't appreciate how a diagnostic test could be an essential tool in pandemic control because again we had prepped for flu not for a novel coronavirus so the specifics of
0: how we got it wrong are maybe important looking back but the next pathogen that hits the united states may well not be a coronavirus and so the specifics of how to respond to a coronavirus pandemic may or may not be key to the next pandemic. But really, a major target of your criticism in this book is that the CDC was not built to be making real-time decision-making during a pandemic and instead is more focused on long-term, high-quality research so that it can make suggestions about health over the course of people's lives and not necessarily in the moment. What does an agency that is built to make real-time decisions on a crisis pathogen situation look like? How does it specifically look different from what the CDC looks like today?
2: Yeah, I mean, on your first point, and it's a very good point that the next one may not be a coronavirus, the next one may not be a flu, or the next one may be a flu with very different characteristics. I think part of the problem with our pandemic planning is that we've planned for very specific pathogens that have very specific features. Like we've assumed... The next pandemic would be the bird flu, H5N1. It would have these features. And what we really should have been planning for is the unexpected. We should have had plans in place that were flexible enough that they could accommodate a range of different features. So for example, something with a long incubation period as opposed to a short, something that spreads through asymptomatic transmission rather than just symptomatic individuals, something that spreads through aerosols rather than droplets. You could literally make a bucket of all the different features of respiratory pathogens that could trigger the next pandemic and say, let's develop a set of measures that can counter a pathogen that incorporates any combination of these features. That wasn't the way we planned. We planned for flu. As far as the CDC is concerned, the CDC... It's a high science organization. They get bespoke feeds of data. They do deep analytical work, high science. They're very retrospective. They like to take time to be sort of the final answer on a question, not the first answer on a question. They don't have a logistical capability. So I think if you're envisioning an agency that's capable of managing a public health crisis of this magnitude, it has more of a national security mindset where it has a logistical capability to deploy a response Married to a capability to collect data from multiple feeds, not just their sort of proprietary bespoke feeds, which is what CDC was only willing to work with, really, and put out information in a real-time fashion to inform active policy making and policy decisions that is partially predictive, partially informed. CDC is very uncomfortable doing that. They don't. They don't say we think this, and we we have you know a 25 percent probability we would assign to our sort of conjecture. They want to put out something that they can publish in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that's good for every day. And it's good for advancing the public health in a normal circumstance. But in a crisis, you need, you need an agency with the national security mindset. And I don't advocate creating a new agency. I think that it's gonna be hard to create a new agency. I think that this capability has to reside within the CDC or should reside within the CDC. But it's got to be a much different culture, much different function, much different orientation. It's got to be an agency almost with with a national security type of contour to it. And the final point on this is if you go back to the original creation of the Epidemiological Intelligence Service, EIS, this is sort of the the heart of the CDC, the the sort of romantic part of the CDC. These are the people who go out into the field and collect the samples in the hot zone and bring it back for, for analysis in the lab. In, when this was, group was created, I think in the 60s, or actually the 50s, the word intelligence was a very deliberate decision using that in the title because the early creators of the CDC, of the modern CDC, wanted the agency to be thought of as part of the nation's security infrastructure. But that ethos has sort of been eroded over time, and more of the prevention part of the agency, which is important work, has kind of started to subsume the agency and become the more prominent part of what CDC does. I think we need to get back to making sure that there's a balance between the national security aspects of their mission and the more bottom line public health prevention aspects. How do we reduce smoking, heart disease, things like that.
3: Can I drill down on that culture part a bit? Because one thing that's striking rereading the book is not just that people were wrong about many things early on, but they were, they were very confidently wrong. They'll say it will be very unusual to have a lot of asymptomatic transmission for a respiratory pandemic. Or they'd say, we really think these masks are not gonna help very much. Is that ingrained in the culture of US public health agencies? How can people communicate uncertainty better?
2: I would draw a distinction between the things that we got wrong because we were just wrong on the science and the things where we we got it wrong because we expressed too much certainty when we knew there was doubt. In a fog of viral war with a new pathogen, we're going to get things wrong. I think we have to have a process that surfaces information quickly enough so that we can find the true answers. But I think what was more corrosive in the setting of this pandemic wasn't the things that we got wrong because this was highly unusual. And yes, there was a better way to communicate early on about some of the things that we thought were fact because we shouldn't have been as confident as we were about certain things like the asymptomatic transmission because we didn't understand this pathogen. There was an indication that there was asymptomatic transmission. But I think what was more tragic was the places where we were, we expressed a lot of certainty where we knew there was doubt and we didn't express the level of doubt around the pronouncements we were making because I think that eroded public confidence even more. And and if you look at the CDC guidance that got put out, there were a lot of places where First of all, CDC, when they put out guidance, they're not obligated to explain their scientific rationale. They don't publish detailed scientific analysis of why they came to certain conclusions. They don't have public advisory committees and vet this in public. They don't assess their level of certainty. And so that creates a situation where, you know, CDC puts out guidance on like five things you should be doing. And you as a consumer or even a policy official can't look at it and say, look, They seem really certain here. They really seem certain that masks can reduce transmission, but they seem uncertain about the six feet and maybe three feet's okay of distance. So I'm gonna put more vigor into getting my local population to wear masks, and maybe I'll be a little bit more accommodating on the distancing requirements because it seems less certain. CDC afforded the population no ability to make an independent assessment which was important because you have limited resources, limited capital, limited ability to galvanize the public. You have to make choices sometimes about where you're going to invest your resources to try to get compliance. And you had no ability to do that. I think we should have been more forthcoming about the level of uncertainty about the things that we were uncertain about. And the things we got wrong, We just there's things you're going to get wrong. And that's more of a public communication challenge, Of I think, of public health officials in general. There's this instinct where you sort of Overcalculate the level of certainty around some of these questions and people have a hard time expressing doubt and I think it's very important. My question
0: here though, is when you're trying to, at least at the start of the pandemic, get people to quickly and dramatically change their behavior, how much room is there for expressing uncertainty? Does expressing uncertainty work against your effort to try to get people to change their behavior quickly and dramatically? So there's that tension. There's also the tension of, this is a new pathogen. You have very limited information about it. So how do public health experts balance the tension between you know moving too fast and getting it wrong versus moving too slowly and potentially costing lives?
2: Look, I think that good risk communication in the setting of a public health emergency requires us to tell the public what we know and we don't know. And I think if you're doing that all the way through consistently, and you're speaking to the public in an honest way, that's going to actually engender more trust, more confidence than less. What's
0: a good example of doing this, maybe abroad or with other issues here in the United States?
1: Or like, have we done it in the past?
2: Well, so let me just take one that I talk about in a book that happened in the setting of this with, with the masks early on. I was involved in some of that discussion around trying to get the task force to ultimately adopt the recommendation that people should wear masks. And the pushback I was getting around wearing masks wasn't that there wasn't supply available because ultimately we settled on a proposal for cloth masks on the data that we had seen that showed that if if you're infected and you're wearing a cloth mask, you're 50% less likely to transmit flu infection. The data was with flu, not with the coronavirus, but we felt that that was at least partially transferable. And when I approached the task force with this and with this argument, we ultimately published it in a report. The pushback I got wasn't that there was no supply of cloth masks or cloth masks don't work. The pushback I got was that They said, look, we're telling the public they should stay at home right now, and if we tell them that they could wear masks, then that's a mixed message. They're not going to be able to assimilate that. We're saying, stay home, but wear masks. And all the public's going to hear is that, well, you could go out as long as you're wearing a mask, and so we don't want to say that to the public. I thought that was pretty corrosive because— you know, we knew that what was happening was people were asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, didn't know they had COVID, and they would go out and they would transmit the virus. And if you could put a mask on that individual, their likelihood of transmitting the virus would be reduced. And so that's a place where I think we could have communicated much better and been able to accomplish both goals, encourage people to stay home. And if they had to go out, encourage them to wear a mask. And then the initial rationale behind wearing a mask wasn't that it was going to protect you. The idea of wearing the cloth mask wasn't that if you were in a room with infected people and you had a mask on and those people didn't have masks on, you would be protected. We knew a cloth mask was only partially protective to the individual who wore it. The idea was that we knew that a lot of the transmission was through asymptomatic people. So if that asymptomatic person had a mask on and didn't know that they were asymptomatic and then went into the room, they were going to be a lot less likely to transmit the infection because they had the mask on their face. That's why the mask was initially recommended. We didn't communicate that to the public. So everyone thought they were wearing masks to protect themselves. And then when the data started to emerge that, hey, cloth masks were only 20% protective, that then opened up everyone up to criticism, all the public health officials who had advocated masks to criticism because everyone said, the masks don't protect me. You told me to wear a mask. It doesn't afford me a lot of protection. No, the mask was never meant to protect you. If you want to protect yourself, you should have been wearing a level three procedure mask or an N95 mask. But we did not educate the public about masks, about the rationale for wearing a mask, about the difference between different quality masks. And if you want to afford yourself a high degree of protection by wearing the mask, you should get a KN95 mask or an N95 mask. We certainly didn't take steps to make those supplies available even to vulnerable people, which we could have. I mean, there's, there was a point when there was plenty of supply in the market of higher quality masks. Early on, there wasn't. By the fall, there was. And right now, there's a plethora of supply. We're still not making high quality masks and properly educating the public about the differences in quality. Some governors have tried to do it. So where does that
3: come from? Because we're kind of like also getting the idea of the so-called noble lie here, where, you know, at one point Dr. Fauci said, Well, I deliberately underestimated where I really think the herd immunity threshold is at, because I'm not sure people could handle a case where you have to get to 70 or 80 percent, which might be right under Delta. But as like a citizen and a journalist, I've been bothered that you will read some scientific paper or talk to some public health official and it'll have some like complex and nuanced truth to it. Then you'll see the messaging and it's like simplified or dumbed down. And if you kind of push back and say, actually, this seems like it's simplified or dumbed down, people get very angry at you. But like, why isn't there more of a culture of let's give the public information, let's understand that they're going to have to deal with some complexities and trust them to do the best that they can.
2: I don't think this is the noble lie. I think that this is a challenge across multiple institutions, but in the realm of public health, I, I've grappled with this even at FDA. And I talk about some examples in the book, you know, that looks small next to dealing with COVID and a global pandemic. So I'm not trying to say my experience is, is sort of representative or transferable to what these officials were dealing with. But when we had issues involving like a drug safety question, I talk about one particular one in the book. There's always a temptation to, to say, look, we don't really know what's going on. Let's wait a week or two. We'll get more information. We'll be able to put out something more definitive. That's what I would hear from my staff. And my, my argument back was, no, we have to put out what we know. We want to speak to this first. You don't want this coming out in some other form from other body, and then we look like we're not engaged. We don't know what's going on. There's a way to communicate this information and acknowledge all the uncertainty, and if we're putting out the information on a regular basis and we're telling people exactly what we're doing to get to the final answer, that's going to ultimately make the public more confident, because what we're saying is, you know, we have this concern, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, but this is what we're doing to get the answers, and as soon as we have the subsequent information, we're going to make that available. To me, that inspires confidence, trust, it it reduces rather than elevates the public alarm if the information is coming out in that way from an expert authority. But that's not the natural instinct. So even, you know, in my own travels inside FDA when I was there, this was a constant challenge with risk communication. You know, putting out speculative early information where you didn't have the final answer. There was a reluctance to do that. I think it's institutional. I think it's cultural within in the medical and public health establishment. I think it's part of the challenge of communicating in an environment where you can't control all the downstream messages very easily so a narrative can easily get out of hand. That's why I use Twitter so much. You know, I use Twitter to do rapid response to misinformation in the marketplace and knock things down very often. It gave us a tool to do that. But I think that's part of what's going on here. This is not just sort of COVID specific. I think you're seeing some of the cultural inhibition in the broader establishment.
1: When we did a story on the CDC culture and sort of how some of these things factored into like what kinds of decisions they were making. I'd interviewed a woman who had worked on the Zika outbreak. And one of her quotes was, it was my job to waffle. And that sounds like the kind of thing you're talking about, of like where, from a very reasonable scientific perspective, people don't want to be too certain of something too early, or they're second-guessing how people are going to interpret what they say at all times. And that kind of gets you into this distinction between risk aversion and toxic risk aversion. And it seems like we kind of drifted into the toxic form of risk aversion at times during this pandemic. And I'm just curious, have we gotten this right in past health crises? Did you see things in Zika, in the H1N1 outbreak that presaged this, or were we doing things better at that point in communication that we just failed to do this time? Let me give you
2: an example of the culture as I grappled with it. Again, on a much smaller scale. During the 2017-2018 flu season, I was new at the agency. I had come aboard in 2017 as commissioner. We were just entered the flu season. I was probably four or five months into the job. My officials were very worried that it was a particularly bad flu season and the, the vaccine that season wasn't covering the flu very well. And we crafted a public health advisory to alert the public, to basically say we think that this is a very virulent flu season, this strain seems pathogenic, and there seems to be a mismatch between the vaccine and the strain. I put that through interdepartmental clearances, all public health advisories go, and CDC went to the secretary's office to block me from putting that out, because they said, we talk about the flu, not you, FDA. It's our job to talk about the flu, and we're not ready to make a pronouncement about the severity of the flu season this year. We don't have enough data. And we were in the middle of the flu season, so if you're not going to make a pronouncement about it in the middle of the flu season, when are you going to do it? Six months later? Actually, it was about eight months later that they finally made a pronouncement about the flu season. So I took that advisory. I recrafted it as an update to the label on the vaccine, on the flu vaccine, under the premise, I regulate the vaccine, not CDC. I could say anything I want in labeling. And we put it out as an update to the labeling of the vaccine. Basically the same statement. We were right. There was a mismatch between the vaccine and the flu. The flu vaccine that season was only 25% protective. I think around 80,000 people died of flu that year. It was a very bad flu season. The CDC didn't make that conclusion until the subsequent fall when they put out their Morbidity and Mortality weekly report, and they say, ah, it was a pretty bad flu season. Another example, when we got the data from the National Youth Tobacco Survey showing a dramatic rise, this was the summer of 2018, a dramatic rise in youth vaping. So this was our survey, but we commissioned the CDC to do the survey for us. I said, we have to put out this result right away. It was a public health crisis. CDC tried to block me from putting that out. I ended up putting it out right away, but I didn't disclose the data or where it came from. I I gave a speech, if you remember, like a week later after we got the data, saying that I'm in possession of data that shows that there's a dramatic increase in youth vaping and this is a public health crisis. Everyone knew it was coming from the National Youth Tobacco Survey, but I I didn't say that. And then finally we put it out because I went to the health secretary, I went to Alex Azar, and got him to intervene with CDC to get CDC to put out the data, to, to let us put out the data, because I felt it was really important to get that out. They wanted to wait to publish it. So it's not just a culture, it's a mindset also of the organization about how to treat information and how to sort of put out partially informed information in a real-time fashion that you know can help people make current decisions.
0: Yeah, this seems like a very interesting tension. I mean, something that we talk about a lot at Five Thirty Eight is trying to communicate uncertainty and risk, and we haven't perfected it ourselves here, I think. And it's interesting to see public health officials also try to do that. I'm curious if maybe from listeners, who've had experiences abroad where they felt that uncertainty and risk were communicated effectively and transparently throughout the pandemic. I do want to talk about some of the politics here, but first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. In your book, you, in large part, try to stay out of the partisan political battles that flourished under COVID, essentially. But in reality, no matter what kind of agencies you set up or who you have in charge as your public health officials, it's going to be politicians, elected officials, who are enacting the policy. So one, how much was it on the agencies over the past year and a half versus the politicians in terms of getting this right or wrong? And how much do you think in the future that changing agencies will change the outcome as a result?
2: There were clearly political failures all along the way. I stayed out of those political discussions for the most part because I I wanted to focus on the more structural features of government that I I felt made us excessively vulnerable to this pandemic. I felt other people were going to tell the political narrative better than I, I did. And in fact, other people did. If you read Nightmare Scenario by the Washington Post team, I think that was an excellent book talking about the political response to COVID. I also think that a lot of the political shortcomings weren't just at the president's level or even the White House level. They were at the leadership level inside HHS. And no one's really pierced that narrative because the temptation over the past year has always been to blame everything on the president. That's been the prevailing narrative. And I'm not saying the president gets a pass here. There were a lot of mistakes. I think the most corrosive was the president's unwillingness to sort of galvanize public action against a consistent set of things that we could do as a population to mitigate the spread and and go from early on being willing to implement stronger measures to by the end being so cavalier about the virus that he ceremoniously took off his mask while he was still contagious with the virus. But I, I deliberately tried to focus on the structural features of government because I think that there were key failings and they need to be fixed. You know, we don't know who's gonna be in charge politically, so we can't control for that in the future, but we can control for the government apparatus that we hand the next administration to try to mitigate the next pandemic. And we've gotta be focused on that.
3: It is a show about politics. I wanna try to drill in in one slightly different direction here. As far as I can tell, the overwhelming majority of people who work in public health are at the very least not Trump supporters. And probably the large majority are are liberal Democrats. Do you think that creates challenges in terms of, A, like staffing if there's a Republican president in the future, B, communications where things that might be more partisan messages get kind of confused with genuine scientific messages? You know, this is kind of a new thing with super high educational polarization in the U.S. and, And I just wondered what your thoughts were about that.
2: I've seen Republican administrations be good on public health issues. I think the Bush administration was, by and large, good on public health issues. I mean, George Bush created PEPFAR. We did extensive pandemic planning and, and investment in trying to uh, plan for a pandemic. We planned for a flu pandemic. We planned for the wrong pathogen, but but there was a lot of efforts. I don't think there's anything sort of antithetical or was anything antithetical about the public health and the Republican Party, I think things have changed now. And I, I sort of bemoan the fact that more and more elements of the Republican Party, and I'm a Republican, have now become the home of the anti-vax movement and other kinds of collective public health actions that we should all be for. But in terms of the public health establishment in these agencies being more liberal than conservative and more Democrat than Republican, I don't think there's anything that makes it inherently hard for a Republican official to lead a more liberal public health agency. And I was a Republican official leading the FDA. I think as long as you demonstrate that you care about the mission of the agency, that you're aligned with the sort of core principles of why people are there. People are very public health-minded. There's an esprit de corps in these agencies. They're mission-minded. As long as they trust that you're aligned with the principles that guide their work, you're going to be able to work with the professional staff and advance policies. And so I didn't find it challenging to operate effectively inside the FDA because I felt I had earned the trust of the professional staff that I cared about the mission of the agency. And that's what was guiding my judgment. So I don't think that that is a factor or needs to be a factor. I think what was a factor here because you had a White House that – Became disgruntled with the agencies inside the government, the public health agencies, sometimes appropriately so. I mean, CDC was legitimately surfacing the wrong information to the White House and giving bad advice to policymakers. But instead of trying to reform the agencies, they just browbeat them. You know, the president literally tweeted at agency officials because they really didn't have a sense of how to reform government, you know, among those policy officials inside the components of the White House and the department. And so that was the problem. They didn't know how to actually put in good qualified people, bring these agencies along, try to move them in the right direction if you thought things were systemically wrong with the way they were operating.
1: Do you see any opportunities now for how we can depoliticize some of this stuff? Because there's some really basic public health ideas that have turned into partisanship, whether that's along a left-right axis or whether that's along some kind of more complicated anti-establishment axis? How do you depoliticize something like mask wearing or something like social distancing or vaccines?
2: I think that we're in a precarious place right now because we are literally going to have governors running for president on vaccination. And this is not just going to affect COVID vaccines, this is going to bleed into other vaccines as well now, that you have this, this sort of movement that we're now taking a vaccine as somehow an expression of your individual liberty, rather than just something that we collectively do because it makes sense. I think we're on very uncertain, somewhat dangerous ground from a clinical public health standpoint. And I don't know that the public health community, broadly really appreciates this and and the place where I've been kind of un, uneasy is around the mandate that the president Biden proposed around businesses but I think the Biden administration has done an outstanding job rolling out this vaccine 78% of adults over the age of 18 have had at least one dose of vaccine most of them will complete this series you know we're going to get to 80% we we'll probably will get to 85% I think it's going to be very hard to get above that but I I think we have to ask the question to get that last increment, that last 3%, what price are we willing to pay? And are we willing to do things that's gonna take something that is already a political debate, I'm not being Pollyannish, I mean, this is political, but make it even more political. Make this now a presidential level debate in the next election, because that mandate on businesses will do that. And we should ask ourselves, what are we gonna get for it? Are we gonna get 10% of the public more vaccinated? I don't think anybody can say that. 5%? Maybe. 3%? Probably, definitely. And of the 5%, let's just assume it's 5%. Let's assume now with this mandate, instead of reaching 80%, which is where we would have hit, and maybe even a little bit more than that, just based on the good work they've already done, let's say we get to 85 or 86% now of adults vaccinated for COVID. I think it's exceptionally high. Pediatric vaccines oftentimes aren't above 90%, and they're mandated for school attendance. But let's just say we get to 85%. So we've got 5% more of the adult population vaccinated. Half of those adults had COVID, probably, because probably the group that remains unvaccinated is overrepresented by people who've had the infection. We know about 40% of the public's had COVID. So I think it's reasonable to say 50% of those who are unvaccinated have had COVID. So we've now only picked up 2.5% more people that we're actually putting immunity in. What is the practical benefit of that from a public health standpoint in terms of creating a wall of immunity that's going to break off this pandemic versus the price we've paid by making this now a presidential-level political fight. I'm not saying there's not a benefit. There's a benefit. But I would like to understand that analysis, that how much is that extra increment buying us in public health protection versus what we've paid politically and culturally? We should have a basic understanding of that. We should at least be asking the question because while more vaccination is better, but there's a point at which getting that last 1% you're going to pay such a price for doing it that you have to ask, is that last 1% providing such an additional st- substantial benefit? Because if you talk to a lot of public health officials, their approach is more vaccine, more, get more people vaccinated. And there's no sort of, okay, what's it going to take? A lot of my book is about empowering public health officials, building stronger public health institutions. I think it's critical that we do that you have to empower public health officials in a crisis. I think there's going to we have to have a more fundamental debate in this country, though, about people's willingness to do that. To your original discussion we had today, people now are skeptical of public health advice. They feel it was poorly informed at times, that it shifted, that public health officials were too certain in times of uncertainty and should have expressed more of their doubts that they were having. And I think this is broader than just right-left. I think that there's probably a majority of Americans who are going to be somewhat skeptical of giving blind authority to public health officials to act unilaterally in a public health crisis. And so before we have the discussion about building out a new apparatus in CDC and empowering CDC even further, we're going to have to have that other discussion. And I'm I'm very worried about that. I think that's going to be a hard discussion to have because I think we're going to find that the level of skepticism, this isn't just a right-left debate. I think there's a perception in the public health community, this is just right-left. It is right-left. I'm not being naive here, but it's more than just right-left.
0: Scott, what you're talking about here is really how do we have a conversation about trade-offs in the middle of a public health crisis, right? The U.S. government has never forced Americans to make the decisions or to do the thing that will best improve their health outcomes because we live in a society where we have lots of freedoms to do things that might hurt ourselves when it comes to health. But how do you envision a conversation? And this came up with lockdowns. This came up with wearing masks outside. This has come up, you just brought it up with regards to vaccines and private workplaces. This is a political debate because this is about your life values. How do you do that while keeping faith in public health officials long-term and not turning it into, you know, these people are bad and these people are out to make you do the wrong thing for sinister reasons. And how do you have it in the way
2: that you're describing? Well, look, I think you have to have these debates as policymakers and make choices. There's ways to try to push more vaccination that might be less costly than other ways. So for example, I believe that your choice to get vaccinated is not just your individual choice. You're making a choice that's going to have a collective impact an impact on your community an impact on your workplace an impact on your school and so to the extent that these are collective decisions we should allow the collective element to make choices to mandate vaccines if they feel if a business feels the only way they can protect their employees and their customers is by mandating vaccines they should have the ability to do that we might even provide them incentives to make that choice same thing with the local school district so governors shouldn't be allowed to tell them you can't do that but should the federal government come in and say, you have to do that, are you going to pick up a lot of additional vaccination that you wouldn't have picked up if you just tried to use incentives to drive that action versus other places where you might mandate vaccines? Like certainly within the federal workforce, the federal government has the right to mandate vaccines. I support that. It's a matter of federal red- readiness, the DOD. I think with healthcare workers, absolutely. We require healthcare workers to get vaccinated for chickenpox and hepatitis B and influenza. Why should this be any different? But there were other choices we could have made. So for example, we require Medicare plans to have to vaccinate a certain high percentage of their recipients, their Medicare recipients for pneumonia. Why don't we do that for COVID? We could have driven more vaccination among the very age population that's having the worst outcomes from COVID, over 65. So there were other things you could have done that would have allowed you to pick up increments of vaccination that might not have engendered this big political debate around the imposition on private businesses where you're now going to have litigation. You know, the administration, I think they're well-intentioned. I don't think they did this as sort of a political gesture to open up this political fight, but they had to know they were opening up a political fight. So now you're going to have the litigation. You're going to have the governors running against it. You see it, I see it in the conservative media. This is now the political flashpoint, and a lot of people will get more dug in around vaccination now, not less. So could you have done all those other things Seen how it went, and then left this on the table if you had to do it. Uh, I think with all those other things, given the success they've had already, I think we would have gotten to 82% of the adult population vaccinated. 86% is better than 82 I accept it. I state it. I know it. We all know it. How much better? I mean, what are we really picking up, and what price are we paying for it? And I, I just think... At the very least, we need to ask that question. And I haven't seen that question debated in any public health circle. I think that public health people will find it an anathema that I'm bringing it up. So, but I think we just have to struggle with this. I mean, it seems like some of these choices might be based on how
3: you forecast the Delta wave is gonna go. Cases have begun to drop pretty significantly in the US. So this kind of brings up a two part question, right? Number one, can the agencies get better at forecasting? And is that important? And number two, to kind of put you on the spot, do you have a view on how likely we are to have like another peak in the winter versus a continued decline?
2: Yeah, the CDC is getting better at forecasting. They built out that new modeling of forecasting center run by Mark Lipsitch and Caitlin Rivers and Dylan George. And so that's an excellent group. And those are people who come out of sort of that national security realm of epidemiology so they have that mindset and that's the mindset i think you need to see more of inside the cdc in terms of the delta wave my presumption is that this is the last major surge of infection that we're going to see in this country barring something unexpected the tail risk that there's going to be some new variant that completely evades you know the immunity that we've acquired from vaccination or natural infection and on the back end of this prevalence will decline there'll be persistent prevalence all through the winter But maybe it'll be, you know, 15 to 20 cases per 100,000 people per day. And we're going to be vaccinating our kids. And that's going to alleviate a lot of the anxiety that many adults feel. And there's going to be an oral antiviral hopefully available pretty soon. Um, And the monoclonal antibodies will be more accessible. And there'll be sub-Q formulations. So the whole, you know, nature of the threat is going to change dramatically with both better technology as well as lower prevalence. Probably if you see new variants emerge, they're going to be within the Delta lineage. And we can adapt our vaccines by using a Delta virus as the backbone for future vaccines. So I am optimistic that on the back end of this Delta surge, and hopefully we'll be through this by Thanksgiving across the whole country, it's been sort of a regionalized rollout of Delta, if you will, across the country. Hopefully on the back end of this, we get down to levels where we we start to learn how to function society against the backdrop of a persistent risk that isn't so pervasive and so deadly that it's inhibiting us from doing the things we want to do. We're going to be doing the things we want to do just with a little bit more caution going forward. We're going to have to be more vigilant about the risk of respiratory disease across the board, not just because of COVID, but because flu is going to be circulating alongside COVID. And and the twin threat of both of those pathogens is going to cause a lot of death and disease if we let them, you know, run unconstrained.
1: You've said in other interviews that you do think that we're going to have to change our lives as we kind of go into this space? We've been too complacent about seasonal respiratory illness. How should this look going forward? I think people
2: are going to be encouraged to stay home if they're not feeling well. They have a sick relative. I think home testing is going to—there's going to be widespread use of diagnostic testing. I think businesses are going to have to improve air quality filtration. I think businesses are probably going to have to think about ways to de-densify the office and peak COVID flu season. Maybe they'll go to, you know, more flexible schedules— companies will move conferences to the spring and the fall, and you're not going to have them, you know, December 1st. Everyone who tried to get in that last meeting in in December or that holiday party right before Christmas, I think we're going to be rethinking those things because we're going to have to recognize the peak of the respiratory pathogen season every year. But once you have the population vaccinated, which we are getting the population vaccinated, once we have a population that's seen this virus a few times, once we have orally available drugs that could be taken at home when you're first diagnosed with COVID, and we have the advent of widespread home testing, once you have the more antibodies, they're going to be able to rescue people who are vulnerable and get very sick from it, even prophylax people in congregate settings who are immunocompromised, people who are on chemotherapy and, and other kinds of unfortunate circumstances. Once you have all that, this becomes a manageable threat. I think we learn to live with this. Will people be wearing masks more commonly in public in the wintertime? I think they will. I think culture will change on the margins after this experience. It's impossible that it doesn't. But I think that we can get back to living a normal life with a little bit of a layer added on for protecting ourselves from respiratory pathogens. And frankly, we're going to pick up a lot of gains in terms of not just improved health and lives saved, but also productivity by reducing the incidence of flu, hopefully, while we try to keep the incidence of COVID contained as well. So flu seems to be very sensitive to the mitigation that we're adopting to try to control COVID.
3: When you say people have seen the virus a few times, I mean, that means people are maybe getting very mild breakthrough infections potentially. But I'm very confused right now about the public health messaging on breakthrough infections. Is it like we should try to really avoid these because of the possibility of long COVID and there are occasionally hospitalizations? Or is it like, hey, actually, this is kind of part of a long-term strategy. You get a vaccine, and then when you do encounter the virus, it's likely to be very mild and it bursts your immunity further. I mean, should people be trying to avoid breakthrough infections at a high cost, or if you're not at a high risk group, is it okay to have a breakthrough?
2: Look, I think people should be trying to avoid breakthrough infections. I don't know what at a high cost means. I think we're going to get to a point where we're not going to be willing to, nor should we have to dramatically alter our lives to try to avoid the possibility that we may come into contact with this virus. And frankly, if we're in environments with normal prevalence levels, you know, normal being 15 to 20 cases per 100,000 people per day is probably going to be normal for the winter time. your absolute risk as a vaccinated individual is going to go down quite substantially because the risk correlates with the level of exposure that you're going to get. And if your likelihood of getting exposures lower, your risk of getting a breakthrough infection is a lot lower. You know, there is good reason to believe that people who have a breakthrough infection develop a mild or asymptomatic infection after vaccination are at substantially reduced risk of post-viral symptoms both from the data we have on COVID as well as sort of our natural understanding of viral pathogens and vaccinating for viral pathogens generally. You know, generally people who are vaccinated for a viral pathogen who develop a mild illness are less likely to have the, the severe sequelae of that viral disease. So there's reason to believe the same thing's gonna hold here, but probably it's gonna be the case. Immunity is gonna wane over time. You might be in between vaccines. And so a lot of people over the course of a life at some point are gonna pick up this virus even while they repeatedly vaccinate themselves for it, just like most of us, even though we vaccinate ourselves for the flu every year, have probably had the flu once or twice. Now, it's not a perfect example because the flu vaccine isn't nearly as effective as the COVID vaccines have so far proven to be, but you're gonna have instances of breakthrough infections.
0: All right, well, perhaps a glimpse of the future there, but let's leave it at that for now. Thank you so much for joining us today, Scott. Thanks a lot. Scott Gottlieb is the former FDA commissioner. His book is called Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is in the control room and also on audio editing. Nash Kansing is on video editing and Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also of course tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple podcast store or tell someone about us.